April 15th, 2012, lecture discussion number 64 on the book of Romans. And um, having gotten ourselves through last Sunday's first fruits, which, by the way, as you know, is, is usually very difficult for me. Uh, I find it uh, to be very difficult, both because of the preparatory requirements that are there for that day and then the yearly toll that is uh, extracted from watching the, what I call the annual torrents of biblical illiteracy that are vomited out by the contemporary church today, Revelation 3.16. I don't like it. I never have and I never will. And I just have to kind of get used to it. And yes, I know I don't have to watch it and I don't have to listen to it. Uh, but even the most hardened and experienced church observers um, must admit it's getting pretty bad out there. What's happening is this need to draw a crowd. Churches today need to draw crowds in order to survive. It's just the nature of the business, if you will, now. They have uh, huge overheads. And so uh, once they have the need to draw a crowd overcoming the allegiances to doctrine and scripture or reverence, you end up with the mess that we call uh, Easter. And so today, kind of a last gasp, uh, if you will, an epilogue on the whole event. So I want to emphasize a few points. If the dry erase board will work, which is much in doubt. Point number one, Ishtar. If you go away with nothing else, or if you will, I'll go ahead and put the Easter up there for you. Ishtar is a person. First and foremost, Ishtar is a person. It's not first a day. Ishtar is female, Babylonian. Perfectly correct, by the way, to refer to Ishtar as her or she. Absolutely correct. Or Easter as she. And it's, again, Babylonian. Not just female, but Babylonian female. And it's associated with fertility rites. And originally, a day was set aside to worship her, this person, Ishtar. And that day may or may not, it was more or less just based on uh, lunar um, events, but it may or may not have coincided with the feast days of first fruits, I'm sorry, Passover first fruits. So list over here, list over here. I have the three feast days. Right? Sometimes her feast day, Ishtar's feast day, would coincide with Passover unleavened bread and first fruit. Sometimes it would not. So whether it coincided was, like I said, pretty much arbitrary over the beginnings of it. That's been obviously corrected. But that's number one. Number two, I hope it's obvious that God would never have picked a uh, Babylonian fertility ritual or day. He would have chosen one of his feast days, and he did. He chose this one to be crucified on, unleavened bread to be entombed on, and then three days and three nights later, he chose first fruits to resurrect himself. I hope it is obvious that that's the case. It should be equally obvious, as I said, that he would not 
choose a pagan worship person day and co-opt it and its rituals and its idols and its paganism and integrate all of that stuff into his I'm sorry into his feast day of first fruits. He wouldn't have done it. He didn't do it. So what's the obvious question? Why are we doing it? And the stuff, as I said, is fertility images, it's chickens, it's eggs, it's rabbits, it's hunting for chicken eggs. Uh, frankly, it's, uh, I, I can make a strong case that it's Friday crucifixion, and it's the expunging of the three days and the three nights out of the feast day of first fruits. Number three, I am aware that the church of today loves the chicken eggs and the fertility images and the hunting and all of that stuff and the rabbits. I know the church loves it. The stuff. And I know the modern church does not care if the origin of their beloved traditions are Babylonian paganism. church does not care. Won't ever care. Because what's the plan? plan is to draw a crowd. And I, I get all of that. I do. The kids have fun. I've heard that. The, I get, we have big attendance. I've been doing it for hundreds of years. So, realizing that once again, man-conceived traditions have supplanted Scripture. And that's the case all over. The, it's all over the church history. I, nonetheless, find myself uh, flailing away with my little tiny sword Every first fruits at the huge windmill, knowing someday that um, the rock is going to come and smash the windmill into dust. Uh, in the meantime, I, I look like a, well, I look goofy. And I know it. And I'm called goofy. The overwhelming majority of Christendom, if you will, over 99%. I drive around all over the city. Every place I went uh, had a big sign. Ishtar egg hunt. Don't miss it. And look, I did it as a kid. I did it to our kids. We're still finding eggs I hid really well. So I, I get it. But again, it stuns me at the level it's at. And four, so we're kind of, I'm doing an aftermath of the Ishtar Easter today. The Ishtar Easter pollution that comes every feast day of first fruits. And it leaves me with this kind of one thing. I want cliffside people, those of you who are listening by internet and those of you who are here. I want you to be in the group. I want you to be at this group. Because both groups are going to stand before Christ. This is not, unsaved people aren't doing this. Saved people are doing this. And they're going to stand before Christ just as uh, all of us will. Judgment seat of Christ. And I want you to be in the group who stands before Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.9, look it up, judgment seat. And I want you to know 1 Corinthians 5.7. That Christ is something. He's defined as Christ is our what? Is he our Ishtar? No, he is our what? Christ our Passover. Okay? All of this 
is the Passover. It's all referred to as Passover. Unleavened bread is called Passover. First fruits, Passover. And of course, Passover, Passover. How many Passover meals are there, by the way? There's two of them. That's how Christ could be the Passover and and uh, take the Passover, or in the reverse order of that. But I want you to know that, it, that Christ is our Passover. By the way, um, I announced that, um, just for your sake, hi, um, Missy. This is our, next week will be our last, yes, so next week will be our last four o'clock service. After that, it will be two, th- okay, the first Sunday in May. Yes, you're right. The first Sunday in May, uh, we will be meeting here still, but it'll be 2.30. So if you came right now, perfect timing. Football game and buffet. Okay, I want you, this group, to know that it is, it is Christ our Passover and not Christ our Ishtar, or, or a female Babylonian uh, deity. And, and I suspect our group, or that group, that uh, we will be part of will be relatively small. The Ishtar group, uh, her group, is massive. Very, very few people even know. And yet, I, I notice now in the old days, back when I first started doing all of this stuff, uh, I would look around for anyone who would take it on, on the day Easter. And no one will do it. No one did it for the longest time. And why is that, do you suspect? You just don't want to deal with it. Too much fallout, too many problems. Um, and everybody uh, is an employee. That's not the case here so much. It is slightly true, but um, that's the advantage of founding, finding, founding your own church, so to speak. I don't have to, I wasn't interviewed and hired. So I have a lot more freedom. But again, I think the Passover group is going to be very small, but I want you to shun the crowd, take the Passover un- unleavened bread first fruits group. Okay, enough of that. Also, but again, let me say again, this is a person, and it is perfectly appropriate and correct to say so. She is a person, not a day. If you start thinking that way, you'll find yourself realizing that it is untenable to believe what is out there overwhelmingly in the majority. All right, more unfinished business stack today. That's what I'm kind of doing. Spring cleaning, catching up on stuff I've been putting off. Next is a letter from Peter in Australia. Actually, he wrote us two letters. And um, uh, I'm reading them because uh, I want you to know who he's from Australia. Did I say that, Peter from Australia? I want you to know who's out there, and and uh, and you'll see why I, I like these letters. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Okay, here we go. First one um, from Peter. <sighs> Message: I know you're looking at who made God at the same time as you look at Romans, but I am surprised you don't mention Bose-Einstein cons- uh, condensate. Sorry. What he means by that, uh, he's talking about um, essentially uh, dualistic natures of particles. Remember all of that? As matter cools down to near absolute z- zero, I guess relativists will, call, will hate this, but below 0.0008 Kelvin, atoms like sodium and others become wave-like. And that's absolutely true. They no longer have the structures of an atom, 
but act like a wave or as a wave. Passing light through a Bose-Einstein condensate is interesting as the light interacts with the condensate and slows to about 20,000 meters per hour, or 20 kilometers an hour. The sodium atoms lose locality and pass directly through one another. Try doing that at room temperature. Cheers, Peter. P.S. It's a beautiful 25 degrees centigrade, about 75 degrees Fahrenheit. That's his first letter. That, by the way, so you know, pretty common. That's a pretty common cliffside email. How does it make you feel? Do you know your Bose-Einstein condensates? Absolute Kelvin, do you? Wave-particle duality? Here he is again, Peter. Adelaide, Australia. Message. To be read in a Potsylvanian accent. Now, I'm not sure what a Potsylvanian accent is. And uh, so, Peter, you're going to have to help me, maybe. Fearless preacher of Alaskavania. <laughs> Greetings and esteemed thanks for the Roman study 60. Your internet congregation is glad to hear of another member bound by the covenant of grace and pizza. Now, I'm not really remembering, but you see, they listen, don't they? They pay really strict attention. And I, I went through my mind. I said, oh, I probably was just running away with stuff. I speak, of course, of Boris and the undoubtedly lovely Natalia. <laughs> now that made me laugh. I have done it to you. You are now in Australia, the two of you. Isn't that great? <laughs> uh, was Boris simply bad enough? To see his need of a savior, or does he appear regularly with red eyes? You have to figure that one out. We, the internet audience, are of course waiting impatiently to discover the true identities of Rocky and Bullwinkle. I'm sure there is someone there who flies about getting things done. So wherever there's a Boris and Natalia, he is uh, anticipating a Rocky and Bullwinkle, as he should. Will they appear courtesy of a quantum singularity? Or will they evolve from the mind? And I hope summer arrives one day in Alaskavania. Our, our winters are rarely drop, our, our, our winter days rarely drop below 40 degrees Fahrenheit at night, with a cold day being 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Cheers, Pete. So thank you, Peter, very much. I was thinking of making uh, Talia, uh, Natalia and uh, Boris uh, speak out so that you would know they really do exist. Uh, we'll wait for that when the internet is going. But I delight, as you know, in making you all famous. I do. And you are. You are. You'd be surprised. I'm, I'm single-handedly making Seth infamous. But the rest of you I'm making famous. Oh. Uh, Peter, I'm giving, uh, uh, I'm giving the uh, emails to Kathy in the front row. Well, here's Kathy in the front row. She now has them. Huh? No, I want you to let him know uh, that you got them and that I read them in, in class. So, uh, uh, the, again, they're with Kathy in the front row, Peter, uh, which is a position of great import. It's also a position where things are never heard from again. Uh, think lightless prison. So, I bring up 
particle wave duality or dualism again. Obviously, that's what he's talking about. And, and listen, understanding the duality that is in particles, the duality that is in life, light, the duality that is in you, the dualism, very important, especially um, because of this time of year. This is the time of year where there is intentional resurfacing of specific themes that are in the media. They're there every first fruits. All you have to do is tune yourself into them and find them. The monists, if anything, are very, very consistent. Um, they understand their monism very well. And I maintain, by the way, that monists don't believe their own monism. Uh, they do, however, want for you to believe in monism. In other words, physicalists are very much afraid of ceasing to exist. They understand the consequences of cessation of existence, and they're very afraid of it. To compound their fear of ceasing to exist, they also fear not ceasing to exist. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's very logical. At first glance, it might seem illogical, but it's very logical. You see, with dualism comes spiritual immortality. You know that. And with spiritual immortality comes creation. And with creation comes who? The Creator. The beginning, if you will, comes the beginner, comes the creator. And with the creator comes accountability, which is judgment. So the physicalists, though they fear ceasing to exist, also fear not ceasing to exist because they have made a decision. They have exercised a free will to do something, and they're very well aware of that. And therefore, the physicalist wants everyone to believe in physicalism or reductionism or monism, whatever you want to call it, so that all will behave as if there is no what? Judgment. They want everybody to behave as if there is no judgment. So they want you to believe in physicalism, in in ceasing to exist. Ultimately, uh, monism is hedonism. You've had me say that uh, all the time. It leads to... It's the ultimate progression of monism is hedonism and um, for the physicalist. And, and, and he wants for no interference in his hedonism, no restrictions on his behavior, at least for now. That is the basis of evolutionary philosophy is ultimately progressing to hedonism. And certainly they, they want no moral law to apply, at least for now. But they fear ceasing to exist. All they want is for you to believe that so that they have free reign. And I bring all of this up again because of the article that I was going to read to you, but I forgot the article. Uh, just to give you an example of what happens every first fruits, it is the traditional first fruits missive uh, from the evolutionary philosophers, and it's entitled Christianity and Evolution Are They Mutually Exclusive? So let me write that title out. I didn't bring it, so. I'm not, going to have, I'm not going to read the article anyway, so it's not that big a deal. But the title was Christianity and Evolution. Are they mutually exclusive? That's the question. And you see this almost every first fruits. Why? Why so common this time of year? Let me read it again. Christianity and evolution, are they mutually exclusive? Yes. Yes. And if you thought otherwise, 
you would be wrong. How clear is that? Clear as I can make it. And I'm sorry if I've offended you. And I'm not sorry, as you know. I'm not even able to fake my sorries anymore. No one thinks I'm sorry. Let me reword the title a little bit in case uh, you're someone that struggles with this or you have a family member that does. Mostly that's the case. Uh, Let me reword it, the title, slightly. Substance dualism. Substance dualism, immortality, and monistic... Uh, physicalism, cessation of existence. Are they mutually exclusive? Let me reword that. Substance dualism and immortality, that's, that's the Christian side. Substance dualism, immortality, and monistic physicalism and cessation of existence, are they mutually exclusive? Yes. Duh. One says that we... Ourselves, our self, is separate from our body, distinct, different substance. Our identity, our being is immortal and survives the physical death of the body. That's one side, as you know. The other side says cessation of existence and physical death. Only the physical exists. No spirit, no soul, no hope, no purpose, just random chaos. They are absolute opposites. Christian, true Christian belief and evolution are absolute opposites. There's no possibility for compromise or compatibility in any way. So where does this compromise come from? What's it called, the compromise? Do you know? It's called theistic evolutionary thinking. Theistic evolution, evolution theism, or one combination. So where does that compromise come from? I propose that it comes from the Ishtar bunny. That's my position now. Because I've noticed that everybody who likes Ishtar seems to think that somehow they can combine evolutionary philosophy with the Bible. I'm not surprised by that. Ultimately, what is this? Ishtar. It is a Evolution into Passover unleavened bread and first fruits. What is evolutionary philosophy? It is an attempt to meld that cessation of existence into Christian immortality. Whenever you begin to add things, leaven, if you will, in the loaf, you will find that you will add it any and everywhere. If nothing is sacred, nothing is defendable to you, then why is anything defendable? Actually, there are many, many, many within the church who hope so badly for Scripture and evolutionary philosophy to be compatible somehow, any way. They just please make it possible, they hope, that they become desperate to make it so. And I always ask, as you know, why would anyone want this to be true? But anyway, they do. And notice how I frame the discussion really quickly. I call it evolutionary philosophy all the time. I know you've heard it all before, but I need to get it put into the record on First Fruits again. Physicalism, monism, and the Bible are they're, they're polar opposites. And I don't say Christianity and science. I say, I say the Bible 
and evolutionary philosophy, or I say scripture and monism, or I say um, spiritual um, immortality and cessation of existence. That's how I frame it. And the reason is, is because Christianity, as you know, can do what now? Christianity can, can almost mean anything today. If somebody says, I'm a Christian today, what do I do to them? I ask them about ten questions. Who's Jesus Christ? If they don't answer God, then what? I don't, I don't know what you are now. And as you know, in our country today, uh, we have a great debate going on. Is it possible to be a Christian without believing Jesus Christ is God? What do they answer? Oh, yeah, they say all the time, sure, it's possible. Is it possible? No, it's not possible. It's ridiculous. We have many Christians, in quotes, that do not have a deity of Christ's position at all in any form. So Christianity can almost mean anything and does today. And science is likewise corrupted. Science is no longer science. It is a political action committee. It has a political agenda, and politics now control science. Let me put it a different way. The money that politics generates controls science, and science is therefore willing to get the money to the point where they will lie about the science in order to keep the money. Before we condemn the poor little scientists, uh, how about the church? Will the church lie in order to get the money? Oh, sure will. So I don't say Christianity and science anymore. I say um, immortality and cessation of existence or scripture and evolutionary philosophy. That's not an accident. So uh, because uh, Christianity and science require in-depth definitions before you can move on to the discussion. You see, the, the evolutionary monist knows very well that the celebration of the resurrection, in other words, first fruits. The evolutionary monist knows very well that the celebration of first fruits, the resurrection of Christ on his feast day, is the single greatest opposing force in the world to the hopelessness of cessation of existence. That's what he knows. He knows, whoa, look at that, the board is erasing. For those of you who wanted to know whether or not I would continue beating on Kathy in the front row, the answer to that is yes, but not about the board. The resurrection cannot occur. If I have resurrection, the monist knows this. How many S's in resurrection? Did I get it right? Good for me. I can't have resurrection without having something. What do I have to have? I have to have a creator. I can't have resurrection without a creator. Resurrections require creators. So I'll put creator right here. Because just what is the process of resurrection? What am I doing? I'm overcoming death. I'm taking a physical body whose soul and spirit has left it. I'm finding the soul and spirit. I'm taking the body and restoring it. I'm putting them back together. Who can do that? 
the only the one that created both of them, the spirit, the spirit and the soul and the body. He's the only. He did it in the first place, didn't he? He knows the process. He's the only one that has the power, has the capability, the intellect, if you will, to do that. Resurrection requires a creator. The monist knows this. That's why he keeps writing these articles. Is Christianity and evolution mutually exclusive? Again, yes, it's mutually exclusive. It's ridiculous to even put them in the same sentence. Resurrection cannot occur unless the Creator causes it, and the monist knows it. Resurrection demands, as you know, the continuity of the soul. We've spent a lot of time on that. Continuity of the soul um, is necessary for resurrection. Without it, there is no resurrection. Remember those lectures? So I have to have the soul and the mind and the spirit continue as immortal to to continue to exist or I don't have resurrection. And how's the monist feeling about this right now? Does he believe there's a continuity of the soul? Of course he doesn't. He says there's cessation of existence. Does he say there's a creator? Of course he doesn't. There's only physicalism. So therefore, every time a church starts talking about resurrection, then automatically implied is a creator and continuity of soul. I'm a physicalist. I don't want that. I'm trying to get rid of all of that. I'm trying to give you hopelessness. Purposelessness. When you die, you cease to exist like a Head of cabbage. That's what I'm trying to give you. What's the obvious question? Why? What's my point? Why do I want society believing there is no hope and all there is is despair? Why do I want that? Sounds like a hee-haw song, doesn't it? You have a question. Kathy in the front row has a question. Yes, ma'am. What's that? Ah, you have no position that makes him the author of evil. So, you have the, what is the, what causes death? Okay, what causes sin? What causes evil? I sound like a five-year-old, don't I? There you go. That's right. So, anybody wants to know what you question you ask, then you have to answer all those emails now. Okay, which is why I'm doing that, right? Okay. If I have resurrection, I have continuity of soul, I have a creator. If I have continuity of soul and I have a creator, then I have to have a soul spirit. And if I have a soul spirit and it exists and it's distinct and it is of a different substance, all of that is problematic for the physicalists. And see, then you get uh, you finish the natural progression. You go to the most obvious of the obvious question. Why does God insist on a resurrection? Of the body. What's the next obvious question that always goes with insistence on resurrection? That's right. Free will. I cannot. I gotta deal with these two. Human free will. When you're talking about resurrection, you're talking ultimately about human free will. And the monistic physicalist knows all of this. He knows why there's a resurrection. Why is there a resurrection? It's something that he absolutely detests and hates in Christians. Hates it. All you got to do is get on the internet and find out how much they hate you. You believe in these silly fairy tales. They take Christ out of all of the Old Testament and they don't realize what's going on there. There's tremendous pictures of Christ everywhere on every page of the Old Testament. They don't see them and they reduce them to what they consider fairy tales. 
If you take the Christology out of the Old Testament, you will end up there. But what does the monistic physicalist know? Why He knows why there's resurrection. He knows why these are together, resurrection and human free will. What does resurrection imply besides a creator, besides continuity of soul? What else is implied by it? Accountability. What's accountability? Judgment. Nothing makes a physicalist, a monist, more angry than judgment. Or what we call the big heaves. And I've always wanted to have a t-shirt that said big heaves on it. Big heaves 927. What is Big Hebes 9.27? It is appointed for man to die. And then the judgment. That's the Big Hebes 9.27. The Big Hebes makes it very clear that our Creator is holding His creation to account. Resurrection is many things. It is life eternal. It's love. It's goodness. It's joy. It's peace. But it also, it's also the bringing of all the created before the Creator, where each one of us all are, uh, each one of us, all of our free will decisions and choices are examined. And then what is determined after our free will decisions and judgments? I'm sorry, free will decisions and choices. Are, are examined. What happens after that process? Then, yeah. Ba-boom. And, and judgment determines destiny. Everyone is immortal. You can believe you're going to cease to exist. It doesn't matter. What you believe isn't going to affect the fact that you're not. Your destiny, however, is a free will decision. That is why resurrection and free will are together. That's why they're in the same box. Can't talk about one without the other. Because resurrection brings me to the judgment seat or the, or the great white throne, depending on what, I, what decisions I believe. And my destiny is established by my human free will, which is what Kathy was getting to earlier. The relationship between human will and resurrection is inarguable. Choices determine destiny, or if you will, destination, where you will spend your immortality. You will spend your immortality in the presence of God in peace, or you will spend it away from God in torment. That is what? Your decision. That's a free will decision. Now, there are some who disagree with me. What do we call them? That's right. We call them wrong. They don't like me saying things like this, especially around first fruits. Um, But I don't want to deal with them today just because I will in some sense here in just a second. You'll put it together. But I want to talk about the scientifically minded Christians. See, they're not deterred they will repeat their mantra no matter the fertility of it. It is called the most enlightened view. And you've heard it, I'm sure. It comes up every first fruits. And it goes something like this. God created life and the mechanism. You see that? God created life and the mechanism. 
in which allow life to change. So God created life and the mechanism which allows life to change, not only physically, but spiritually. That is called the most enlightened view. And what's the mechanism in that sentence? Evolution is the mechanism, absolutely right. The evolutionary process is, of course. And what exactly are evolutionary processes? Let's name one. Death. Absolute first word on the sentence. Death. You cannot separate evolution from what? Death. Struggling, violent, tearing to pieces, eating the weak, death. Blood everywhere. That's evolutionary process. So, let me read again. God created life and the mechanism. God created life and the evolutionary process in which... Uh, of which allows life to change, not only physically, but spiritually. Barely got that out. Sorry. Natural selection is the survival of the species at any and all costs. It could be summed up in the biblical, um, uh, in a biblical way said this way. It's, it's kind of a joke. Maybe not that funny. Blessed be the predators. Okay? Blessed be the killers. Blessed be the strong. That is the mechanism in the spirit, or in the most enlightened view, at least one of its major aspects. And so if that's your view, if you have that view, or you know somebody that has that view, then you ask them a bunch of simple questions. So, um, the first question, is God the creator of the evolutionary process, or the evolutionary mechanism? If so, then he has to be the creator of what? Death. And then the, his purpose for creating death is to allow life to change physically and spiritually. That's your view. That's the enlightened view. God looked around and said, whoa, i got a bunch of life here. It's not really what I wanted, maybe, or I wanted to, over time, change into something, and I need a mechanism to change it. So I will use tearing it to pieces. That's the mechanism. And that will change it spiritually and physically. Wow. How exactly does evolution account for the creation of the non-physical spirit-soul mind? How does evolution, that mechanism, uh, create, if you will, emerge out of it a spirit, a soul, an immortality, a mind that is non-physical? You, you make God the author of death, and therefore you make him evil. That's what I just re- referred to, Kathy, uh, dealing with that. Have no position where you make God the author of death because you are making him therefore evil. The Bible is clear. Death, sin, evil. Can't get around it. And so you end up with God using an evil mechanism to create a spiritual soul or to advance a physical status. Uh, and that is not defensible. So, a non-physical entity component has to be the result of a physical process if you have God as the author of evolution. And therefore, the most enlightened view, boiled down in its nutshell, says that death has created this marvelous complexity. Now, let me put the, that, that is the enlightened view in a nutshell. Okay. I prefer to it that way. Nuts and hell is more appropriate. It cannot be defended. It's crazy. Violent, bloody death as the means of creation, as the mechanism. That's theistic evolution in its nuts hell. 
And it puts the person who clings to God, and it puts the person who clings to that view, I'm sorry, and the theistic evolutionist, uh, in a position where he is now in opposed to Isaiah 5.20. Not opposed. He is subject to Isaiah 5.20, which says, Do not call me who is good evil, and do not call evil good. Don't assign evil to God. God is good. The Bible and evolutionary philosophy are mutually exclusive, absolute opposites. And you can't get more opposite than Isaiah 5.20. Something is evil and something is good. You have tried to blend evil with good. Are you surprised that that comes up? Look at what comes up on Ishtar. A Babylonian fertility... I'm bringing up theistic evolution. I'm asking if things are mutually exclusive. Cessation of existence. Hopelessness. And where am I putting it? On Resurrection Day. That's what happened last week. That's why I don't like it much. Why? Because they're killing us, literally and figuratively. The church is being slaughtered by this strategy. And every time we get up and say Ishtar or Easter and go hunt for eggs, we have reaped destructive doctrine. Okay, where were we? That was my spring cleaning to take care of all the first fruits problems that I couldn't do last week. Because I didn't want to offend the visitor. So where were we before I did that? That's right, I was in James 2 and Exodus 21. So now what are we doing? Yes, we're starting the sermon. How about that? And your two lists. It's a comparison um, of, of the someone who will say, the, the one who says, if you will, someone who will say, and what's in Exodus 21? The beaten slave, along with the slave who goes before the judges at the, at the gates of the city. But pretty much, if you will, you can just assign the beaten slave and the one who will say, because what I have is physical expression of a mental concept, if you want to think of it that way. And I haven't yet got everything on the board, and I'm going to try to do my best to get that process started so I can at least finish it next week. That's why you're enduring this. It's okay. You'll like it eventually. So let's go really fast. James 2. I'll knock this out. Bang, bang, bang. And off we go to the buffet. James 2. I'm just going to read part of it again. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So make me a new list now. Partiality is over here under James 2. Remember that? Partiality. You have to define it. Why is the context the subject of James 2 partiality? Now let's go and see what it is. For if a man should come into your assembly, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So partiality is evil. 
And that is the context for everything that is now going to follow in the book of James. So when you see faith without works is dead, then what must you do? You must say that has something to do with partiality and evil. We'll move on. 2.14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says... So here's the someone who says, and notice it's if. If someone says... Oops, barely do it. If someone says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, but you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that without faith, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now finally I'll finish with, for the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead also. Okay, never disregard the context of everything I read. What is the context of everything I read? Very confusing, troubling to the church. The context is right here. Partiality. Okay? So let's look at our our, our list. Partiality. It starts out with partiality. And it's talking about a rich man... Or a rich fool, talking about the lovers of money. That is why we covered the lovers of money. First Timothy 6.10, which is physically minded versus spiritually minded, right? If, I love, if I'm a lover of money, I'm loving the physical and I shouldn't be there. And I have a rich man, then I also have the poor man or the poor of the flock, Right? Who are the poor of the flock, Zechariah 11.11? Who are the poor symbols of? Who are the rich symbols of? There's great amount of symbolism here. And if someone says he has faith, that's the someone says right there, right? So all of that fits in with the rich and the poor and the partiality, the someone who says. And... uh, And then I have the destitute or the poor again. And somebody says, depart. Why would you say depart? Depart in peace. Who would say depart in peace? And then the question, can this kind of faith save him? Someone says he has faith. Really? Does he have faith? We covered that before. That person says, depart, be warned. How does that fit with partiality? Okay? That's the beginning of your list. And then it ends with the body without spirit is dead, and as faith without works is dead. So let me put that on the board up here. Put that in its own separate category. The body without spirit. Notice that. The body can die without the spirit, right? The spirit doesn't die. The body without the spirit is dead. And that is equal to what? Faith without works. 
Okay. Now, the mistake that is made here all the time is people say, well, body must equal faith and spirit must equal works in that sentence, right? The body without the spirit is dead, and so faith without the works is dead. Okay? So, therefore, the body must equal faith, and the spirit must equal works. And they try to figure that out. That would be illogical. That's very common. What's true is this is equal to this. So the whole body without spirit is dead is equal to faith without works is dead. That's the only way where it will make sense. If you try to break it apart, it'll give you problems. So that's just someone or something for you to deal with. Now, really quickly, two minutes in Exodus 21 so that I get it out of the way. And next week we can finish it. Remember, someone will say, you have, you have faith and I have works. That's the obvious question when you read that. Who says that? Who says you have faith and I have works? Well, people who have works say that. And they're saying, okay, your faith you say saves you. I have works. I say my work saves me. Does that happen all the time? Sure. Who are the people who say these things? When you read James, go through it and say, how is this partiality of the rich and the poor, which is a symbol for physical loving, if you will, uh, 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 obsessing over physicalism, uh, obsessing over that which can be seen. I made this comment today to uh, Tarothy in the back. Um, We are in a much more difficult position in this world than the apostles. They were the ones who saw and believed. We are the ones who have not seen and believed. Which is hardest? Much harder to not see and believe. Much harder. He says so. Blessed are the ones who have not seen, but they believe. You, Thomas, you got to see and you believe. Not that big a deal. That's pretty much what he says. But the, the rich man is a lover of the physical. The poor are the ones who have not seen yet believe. Exodus 21. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave. Okay? So what have you got now, right off the bat? A Hebrew slave. Sorry, I grabbed the wrong thing here. If you... If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in, if he comes in, if he comes in by himself. That's the one if. How many ifs in here? If he comes in by himself. Who is this about again? Who's the Hebrew slave? If you take Christ out of this portion of the Bible, it will be meaningless to you. Who is the Hebrew slave? Christ is. Did he come by himself? 
If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife will go out with him. If he comes in married. Two ifs. Now this is where it gets very complicated. I'm surprised that Mike hasn't already interrupted me. If his master has given him a wife, if married, wife goes with him. If given a wife, how many ifs so far? Was Christ given a wife? If if his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. By himself. So, he came by himself. He can leave by himself. If, his ma- if he's not married, if his master gives him a wife, he can leave by himself. Or he can do what? But if the servant plainly says, how many ifs do I have now? If the servant, now do you see James 2? Plainly says. Yes, I know where you're going. Yes. Yeah. If if the master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her husband shall be her masters and he shall go by himself. I want you to focus on the ifs. Mike's absolutely correct if I misspoke and said that. But if the servant plainly says, do you see, James 2, now show enough. Because the whole thing over here is someone will say, and the ifs, if, if, and now I get the plainly says, that's what fits them together. But if the servant, if Jesus Christ plainly says, did he say it plainly? As plainly as he could. I love my master, my wife and my children. I will not go out free. What's implied by the word free? Let me ask you this way. Could he have gone out free? Well, be careful. He's omniscient God. Let me put it this way. Would he have ever gone out free? No. And if he would not, could he? Now you're into impeccable impeccability, right? But he does have free will. That was a trick question. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. What is the door or the doorpost? Where else in Scripture is the door or the doorpost? That's right. It's in Passover. What's put on the door, the blood is put on the door, so he will take him to the doorpost, and the master shall pierce his ear, so he will be pierced. So the 
pierced Hebrew slave plainly says, I love my wife and my children and I will not go out by myself. That's what he said. And that fits you back to James 2, where I have partiality. Partiality is evil. How does that fit over there with the Hebrew slave? Remember next comes the beaten slave, right? Who is the beaten slave? Same as this. Next week we'll finish all that up. Let's rise and be dismissed.